Reading from Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to focus with you on verses 23 and 24 today. Verse 23 describes the universal need of every human being. And verse 24 gives the all-sufficient remedy for that need. These two verses are more important than 10,000 books written by man about how to solve your problems and make your future better. These are the words of God through the Apostle Paul, and they tell us about our true condition, and they tell us about what God has done to remedy that condition. If you will build your life on these two verses, if you will make them the foundation of your life, you will be strong and stable in a hundred crises. If you will put these verses and the truth of them at the center of your life, like the sun at the center of the planets of the solar system of your life, then this truth will hold the orbiting planets of all the concerns and aspects of your life in place. But if you allow this truth of Romans 3, 23 and 24 to begin to marginalize and slip out to the rim, say where Neptune and Pluto are out there, you know what would happen if the sun moved from the center to the periphery of the solar system. Everything would be destroyed. Everything would be in chaos. Everything would be confusion and perplexity and weakness, which is why so many professing Christians coast and amble through life, wondering why their lives are so strangely perplexed, so out of sync and out of kilter and out of order, and, and nothing seems to be working right. It's because the truth of this magnificent gospel that I'm going to try to articulate is not at the center anymore. It's not the, the sun that's holding everything in place. It doesn't have the weight of gravity to pull all things. Something else is at the center. You should be asking yourself right now, what's that in my life? Something really grips me in my life. Something I come back to again and again and again. I go there in the morning and I go there at noon and I go there at night 
and it pulls on me. What is it? Verse 23 says that the universal need in the world of every person has to do with sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We saw that from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3. And now he, he tells us a little something about this condition by saying, if you've sinned, your present condition is that you are now falling short of the glory of God. Literally, the word is, you are now lacking the glory of God. What does that mean? All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. Does that mean that we were supposed to be as glorious as God and we fell short and didn't arrive at that divine glory and so we have fallen short? I don't think that's what it means. You weren't designed to be as glorious as God. The best way to put meat on the bones of this simple verse is to go back to Romans 1 and look at the discussion of glory in the context of sin and see what a lacking might mean in Romans. So if you notice in Romans 1, verse 18, Paul said, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Everybody in the world is a truth suppressor until God gets a hold of us. We suppress the truth in our sin, in our unrighteousness. And then look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of God, of the incorruptible God, for an image. In verse 28, they disapproved of having God in their knowledge. That's a literal translation. They disapproved of having God in their knowledge. So the picture you get is that sin is a failure to embrace the glory of God and God himself as our highest treasure and make him the center and foundation and supreme value of our lives. And thus to exchange that glory for some other treasure in this world and thus lack that glory as our treasure and thus bring great dishonor upon God. That's what sin is and does. Sin is mainly about God. It's not mainly about hurting people. Sin hurts people. Sin hurts people. It'll hurt you in the end. But it's not mainly about hurting people. It's mainly about God. And Trading, bartering, throwing away his supreme 
value and glory in order that we might put something else at the center and in the bank and in the treasury of our lives that we love and we lean on and we find satisfaction in. And thus he is belittled and despised, sometimes wittingly and sometimes unwittingly, with the same effect in both cases. Now that's a great guilt. That's a great guilt. The reason it's a great guilt is because God created this universe, the whole universe, to display His glory. So that we might see it and value it and love it and enjoy it and reflect it in the world. That's why the universe and you were created. It should not therefore be surprising to us that the world will go haywire when the world is in rebellion against the design of the world. If God designed the world, according to Isaiah 43, 7, to display His glory, and you are choosing to dispense with His glory, to put something else at the center of your life and love it and live for it and think about it and dwell on it and value it, it's not surprising that the design of God for a beautiful, holistic world would be destroyed in your life. There is dysfunction and chaos and misery all over the world because the whole world is in rebellion against valuing the glory of God above all things. That's why the world and your life is in the condition that it's in. Sin is contemplating God as the supreme value and rejecting Him as the supreme value. And thus exchanging the glory of God for some kind of substitute image. Think of what it is. And thus lacking the glory and thus dishonoring the glory of God. And that is a great guilt. And that's the universal condition of humankind in verse 23. It's a massive problem now that we have. And the problem is, since we've all done this, how can we get right with God when we have so belittled Him? And that's what verse 24 is about. This verse is so rich. It is so rich. A great turn has come in Romans in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Some great event has happened. Now, you hear that word now, but now, but now some great event has happened. And something new is happening in the world. No other religion. No other religion knows of this great now. 
because it's the now of the arrival of Jesus Christ and the redemption that is in him. So let's read verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We could start by asking, who's he he talking about? Who is being justified? But before we ask that, I think I'll close with that. Before we ask that, I think we simply need to soak in this verse for a few minutes about the provision of God. This is the work of God for the condition of verse 23. This is what God has done so that we can get right with God, though we have belittled his glory. So I want to break this verse down into four pieces. One, the phrase being justified. Two, the phrase as a gift or freely. Three, the phrase by his grace. And fourth, the phrase through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's take those one at a time. Being justified, being justified. Let me say three things about that phrase. Number one, notice that it is in the passive voice. This verb is in the passive voice. Remember that from seventh grade? I've talked about that for a long time, have you? It does not say justifying, it says being justified. That is, God is the one who is justifying, we are the ones who are being justified. Justification is not our work. It is God's work. God the Father justifies, we are justified. It happens to us from outside of us. It does not happen in us and we don't produce it. That's the first thing to observe. We are justified. We are not justifiers. Second thing to observe in this phrase is that embedded in the word justified is the word just, which means the same as righteous which links it up with verses 21 and 22. And this is even more clear in the Greek because the Greek word for righteousness is dikai asune and the Greek word for justification is dikai umenoi. So you can hear it very plainly. We would have heard it had we translated it justice, but now the justice of God has been revealed being justified. Then you would have heard it in English. But when you switch from righteousness to justified, you can't hear it anymore in English. The reason I draw that out is because I want you to see that the manifestation of righteousness in verse 21, described in verse 22 as the righteousness which is through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, is describing justification. So collapse it down like this and and read it and translate it like this. Starting in verse 21. Now God's justice or righteousness 
has been manifested. Now jump to verse 22, defining it. Namely, the justice or the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Now jump to verse 24 where the participle picks it up. Being justified. So let's, let's collapse it down a little more. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ being justified. I think being justified means we are receiving the righteousness of God through faith. It is becoming reckoned to us. The righteousness of God is reckoned as our righteousness. And that's what it means to be justified. So it's a very close link between the righteousness being revealed through faith. In verse 22. And our being justified. Or right wise. Sometimes people make up a English Verb to correspond to the word righteousness. We are being rightwised or set right is what the justification means in verse 24. That's the second thing I want you to observe, the link with verse 22. The third thing I want you to observe about this first phrase, being justified, is the meaning of the term justify. Does it mean make righteous or declare righteous. If I said, uh, we need to beautify this sanctuary, everybody would understand me to mean make it more beautiful. Do something. Put some flowers or something somewhere. Frankly, I like its simplicity unless you think I'm proposing something. I'm not. I like stark Simplicity where the word and not any particular symbol is central. But suppose I said, let's beautify it. I would mean make it beautiful. So when I say you are being justified, do I mean God is making you just? Now, to answer that question, I want to just reach out to a couple of texts, one far away in Proverbs and one in Luke and then come back and we'll see it here in the text. Listen to this passage from Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous both are alike an abomination to the Lord. So the opposite of justifying in the courtroom is condemning. Now, when you condemn a criminal, do you make him evil or guilty? You don't. You acknowledge and see and declare him guilty and you assign him his punishment. Similarly, when you justify someone in the courtroom, you declare them just and you assign them their freedom. So when you see that condemnation is the opposite of justification, you see that justifying does not mean make righteous any more than condemnation means make evil. Now here's the other text I want you to think about. This one really clarifies it. When Jesus extolled John the Baptist in Luke 
and said he was the greatest man born of woman. Luke comments like this concerning what the crowds did. He says, when they heard this, all the people and the tax collectors justified God. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, tell me what that means. Justify God? Nobody would dare to say that means we make God just or righteous. The word here, it's the same word exactly in Greek as in Romans 3.24. The word means declare just or declare righteous. So I conclude to to be justified by God does not mean to be made just by God. Justification means to be counted as just, reckoned as just, having the righteousness of God imputed to us, but not in justification imparted to us. It is not an act upon our nature or our state. It is a transformation of our standing before God. It is an alteration of the way God views us and sees us and treats us, not a change of the way we are inside. That is something else besides justification, and we call it Sanctification. And it is progressive, little by little, conforming us to the image of Christ, whereas justification is at a point in time, once for all, on the first act of saving faith, a declaration is sent forth from the bench of the courtroom of heaven, not guilty. And according to Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are no dropouts. And he will see to it that all the necessary prerequisites of glorification, like sanctification, are put in place by his almighty Holy Spirit. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit within us progressively by the Spirit. Justification is the work of God the Father at a point in time outside of us, not inside of us. Written in the book, this one was born there and he is not guilty. Therefore, I am free, justly, as we will see next week, justly to move with my Holy, Holy Spirit into this life and begin to clean it up. And if you don't make that distinction, you will destroy the gospel and you will not know how to have assurance and you will not know how to fight the fight of faith on the basis of the solid rock of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the first phrase, being justified. Now, let's go to the second phrase. It gets better and better. The second phrase is to underline the nature of this great free work of God called justification. The second phrase is being justified as a gift. That's one word in Greek. 
Some versions have freely. That's good. Freely or as a gift. Let me just take you to one or two other texts where it's used. Maybe just one. Revelation 22.17. Let him who desires come to the waters and drink without price. That little phrase, without price, is the same word that's translated here as a gift. And so the meaning is, God's justifying us is done in such a way so that it cannot be paid for by us. It cannot be paid for. You can't pay for this. There is nothing you can pay for this. It is as a gift. And he underlines it. Dora'an. Free. 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 Thank God Almighty, I am free. And don't have to pay anything for my justification. That's the second phrase. Now let's look at the third phrase. Being justified as a gift by His grace. Now we haven't seen this word grace since verse 7 of chapter 1. Because it's been a weighty, weighty three chapters of indictment. And the indictment is such that our only hope is grace. This is one of the greatest words in the vocabulary of the Apostle Paul. You know, you know how many times he uses this in 13 letters? 95 times. Paul loves grace. He lives on grace. He delights in grace. He's rooted in grace. Everything he does is done by grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. Nevertheless, I worked harder than them. Than them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace is all over this man. Under him, in him, above him, around him, before him, behind him. He loves grace. But what does it mean? Especially in relation to justification. Now here we don't have to go very far. Drop your eyes down into chapter 4 to verse 4 of Romans. I will take you back to verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4 over and over again in the coming months because this is a seminal, foundational statement about works, about faith, and about grace. It doesn't get any more foundational about grace than verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4. And I'll just read verse 4, and you listen carefully for a definition now. Now, I'm going to translate it very literally. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited, or you could say counted, according to grace. Now, many of the versions do not help you in English to see it's exactly the same word as in verse 24 of chapter 3. To the one who works, his wage is not credited according to grace, but, here's the alternative, when you work, your wages are credited to you according to debt. 
Your version might say, what is due you? That's fine. In other words, if you work for somebody, you don't get grace, you get wages. Therefore, don't work for God. When you work for someone, you put them in your debt. And you relate to them as one who owes you. Punch your clock, Keith's got to pay RMR employees, or he's unjust. No grace in that. Though my guess is, the way he treats his employees probably has a lot of grace in it. But to get paid for an eight-hour day is not grace. It is debt. Therefore, now get this, it is an abomination to try to work for God. To the one who works, his wages are reckoned not as grace. You get no grace if you work for God. You nullify grace if you work for God. The only way to have grace is to find another way to relate to God than by working for Him. Which is what verse 5 is all about. And we'll save that for another time. I just want you to see what grace is here. Grace is the good that comes to you from a person who owes you nothing. Grace is the good that comes to you from a person that owes you nothing. The reason it's an abomination to work for God comes from Romans 11.35. Listen to this. Who has ever given a gift to God that he should be repaid? What's the answer to that question? Tell me. Nobody. Who has ever given a gift to God, whether it's an eight-hour day or a sacrifice or the reading of the Bible or the singing of a hymn or a going to church or a being a missionary or anything? Who has ever given a gift to God that he should be repaid? Answer, nobody. And then let's all look at the reason given in verse 36. Because from God and through God and to God are all things, and therefore to him be glory forever. Amen. You can't give him anything because he owns everything. Everything comes from him. Everything comes through him. Everything goes to him. You can only receive. That's all you can do in relating to God. You can't add to God. You can't give to God what is not already His by right. And therefore you can never put God in your debt. And therefore any concept of working for God to earn from God or put Him in your debt as one who owes you wages is deadly. Remind you of any verses about wages? We've all memorized 623. We memorized 323. And we memorized 623. The wages of sin is... And the what of eternal life? Did you get it? 
you get the difference? Wages gift, wages gift, wages gift. Work faith, work faith, work faith. They correlate. You get life through faith by grace. You get death through wages by work. You got two options. You can go out of here trying to work for God. Or you can go out of here bankrupt, empty, relaxed, receiving, receiving under the waterfall of grace, future grace, moment by moment by moment. And become thereby the most radical, free, bold as a lion kind of people the world has ever seen. So when he adds the little words, being justified as a gift by his grace, he means you can't work for this. So the little phrase as a gift means you can't pay for it. And the little phrase by his grace means you can't work for it. So now the question is, I'm a sinner. And this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be reckoned, declared righteous before God, accepted, loved as a sinner. What's a possible basis for that? So it's not unjust and God is not scorning his own glory to do that to me who's been so sinful. And that's what the last phrase is all about. Let's close by looking at that. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Here it is. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now there's a word that you all need to love and savor and delight in more than almost any other word. Redemption. What does redemption mean? All this free grace, this gift, this declaration of righteousness over sinners is coming through redemption. We gotta know what this is because it's coming through this. And if we don't have this, if we don't know this, if this isn't ours, we get none of it. What is it? What is redemption? And here's what redemption is. Redemption means deliverance at a cost. Or put it another way. Redemption means release at the payment of a price. Now where do I get that idea? I get it by taking this unusual Greek word, apolutrosis, and noticing that embedded in the middle of it is this little word, lutron, which is used one other place in the New Testament, and it's parallel and means ransom. Where's the one place where the word ransom is used in the New Testament? Mark 10:38 or it's parallel in Matthew 20:18. The son of man did not come to be served to be worked for but to give his life as a, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's lutron. And it's embedded into this word used here in verse 24, apa lutro seos. 
Redemption is the effect of the ransom paying. Redemption is release, the release of the captives, the release of those held in bondage at a cost, at a payment. And so when he says this justification that comes as a gift by grace is through the redemption, we now know he means through the effect of a ransom paid by whom? By Jesus Christ. Which is why the last phrase in the verse says, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, we owe everything to this. If there's going to be any declaration of righteousness over us as sinners, so that we're accepted with God, if there's going to be any gift, if there's going to be any grace, it's not going to become or come to us through our payment or through our work. It's going to come freely as a gift through redemption. So if you ask, I know I hope you've Embrace this. If you are asked by anybody, what's the basis of your life? Where is your life rooted? What's the center? What's the sun in the solar system of your life? What holds everything together? Where do you stand? Where are the roots of the oak tree of your life going down and gripping? Let the answer be the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Because only because He ransomed me, He paid what I couldn't pay, He did what I couldn't do, is God free to declare me righteous with His own righteousness. So I ask as we close, do you want this? I know there are people in this room who do not yet embrace this. Do you want this for your life? Do you want to be declared righteous? Do you want it to be a free gift? Do you want it to be by grace? Do you want your life to be rooted in a redemption and a ransom paid by the Son of God, which you can never pay, so that you can be accepted by God? Do you want to be like a prisoner on death row, who at the eleventh hour gets the unspeakable news, reprieve, pardon, and have the doors of the prison of sin and guilt and condemnation open before you, and you look around beyond belief, and see green pastures and still waters spreading out before you and the invitation of the smiling judge saying, I will adopt you into my very family so that you can have this green pasture and this still water and my friendship for all eternity in ever-increasing joy. Would you like that this morning? Then what must you do? Do? Dangerous word. What must you do? The answer is given in verse 22. It is a righteousness manifested, the righteousness of God through faith. Through faith. To the one who works, his wages are reckoned to him not according to grace, but according to debt, but 
to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Faith is that strange and wonderful nothing that a baby experiences when it does not jump out of his mother's arms, but simply rests. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would all be babies now in this moment. As we close, unless you turn and become like little babies, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because babies are the best model of trust that Jesus had to show us. They can't work for their mother's milk. They can't mow the grass or clean their room or make a meal. They can't even get from one room to the next when they're three months old, they can only enjoy. They can only rest. They can only receive. They can coo and they can smile. Father, make us childlike. Teach us what faith is at Bethlehem. And I pray for those who need faith right now that you would pour it out while people deal with God about this. When all around your soul gives way, may the Lord make the righteousness of Christ, the justifying work of the Father, the free gift, the grace of God, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, your hope and your stay. And all the people said, Amen.